And let's pray together one more time. Uh, Father, we come to you, uh, and just as we just saying, just that we can say that this morning, Father, we come to you. It is a miracle of your grace and the evidence of your great love for us. We, we did not have a way to you. We had no right to call you Father. Uh, we were separated from you because of our sin. We deserved death, and yet, because of your great love with which you loved us, you made us alive. While we were still sinners, you sent your Son, your beloved Son, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could become sons and daughters of you forever, part of your family, Lord. And so let us not take lightly this morning, Father, that, that we get to call you Father and we get to come to you and, and that the living God is our Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, you're a good Father, and, and as any good Father does, you provide for us. You take care of your family. You make sure that your children have what we need. And right now, we come to you and say that we need to hear from you. We need the bread of life in your word through Christ. And so we would pray that during this time that you would nourish us, that you would feed us through your word. And Father, each of us comes this morning with a set of circumstances going on in our lives, some, some good, some not as good, some, some rejoicing, some afraid, some in sorrow. Father, we bring our hearts to you right now. We pour them out before you because you are a refuge for us. And Lord, again, we, we say that what we need most, what we want most right now, Lord, is to hear from you, to enjoy your presence in this moment as you speak to us, your people, through your word. Open our eyes to see the wonderful things you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Morning. It's good to see everyone today. Hope you've had a good week. Last night was the beginning of the 150th season of college football. And as you can see, I'm wearing my Gator tie today to celebrate. The Gators kicked off the season last night, and, and thankfully we won. Somehow we won. If you saw the game, you know how hard we tried to lose, but we won. You know, when I was in high school, it was a good thing to be a Gators fan back in high school. Like the, the Gators had the best quarterback in the country, and we were the best team in the country. And then one day, everything changed. It was a fateful day. There was a block in the road suddenly. Out of nowhere, there was this insurmountable obstacle, and his name was Nick Saban. And since that day, we have not figured out how to break through to winning championships again. And I was thinking before yesterday uh, that maybe this would be the year, but honestly, after seeing last night's game, probably not. It's probably not going to be this year. So we continue, continue to tread against the insurmountable wall of the Crimson Tide. 
Now, putting the trivial nature of college football aside, uh, in real life, we, we all do face situations that seem insurmountable. We face difficulties that, that we have, have no idea what to do with. We, we face impossible situations. We, we think we're going a certain direction, and then we come up against a block in the road, and our only option seems to be to give up and to go back from where we came from. This is, this is true in, in life in small ways and in big ways that we come up against situations and obstacles that we just cannot seem to do anything about. We have no, we have no power to change what we're facing. And, and maybe this morning you're facing that right now. Maybe today you would say, yes, there, there is this situation in my life that just feels impossible. There's no way forward. I have, I have no recourse for action. It's insurmountable. I don't have any options. It's a dead end. Well, the people of Israel felt this way as well. They experienced this as well. And we can see that this morning in Joshua chapter 3. You can open your Bible there to Joshua chapter 3. We are in a series called Receiving the Promises. And we've been making our way through the beginning of this book. And let me remind you of the situation that the people of Israel are in as we open Joshua chapter 3. In Joshua chapter 1... Moses has died, Joshua is the new leader, and God speaks to Joshua and to Israel and says, it is time to enter the promised land. I am giving you the promised land. It's time to go in and to take possession of it. In chapter 2, Israel sends two spies into the land. We, we saw the story of Rahab as they go in the land and see this person, this Canaanite prostitute who has faith, but she tells them that All the inhabitants of the land are melting before them. And so the spies come back and they say, surely God has given us the land. And so within two chapters, we see that God has said it's time to take the land. And we see Israel get confidence that indeed God is going to give them the land through the testimony of Rahab. And so it's time to enter the land. It is time to receive the promise of the land. It's time to go in, except for one Problem. Israel is going to face one major obstacle that stands between them and the land. Look at Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, and we see what this is. Joshua 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. Here's the problem that Israel faces. In order to get into the promised land, Israel needs to cross the Jordan River. There they are. They're, they're ready to go in the land, but they are, they are there. In verse 2, it says, For three days by this river, wondering, how are we going to get across? This river stands between them and the promises of God. Now, lest we imagine that the Jordan River is something like Coldwater Creek, where you just go in and wait around and it's nice, I want you to see something that the author says later in the chapter to show us what the Jordan was like in this text. Look down at verse 15. It's just a parenthetical comment that the author gives at the end of verse 15. But he tells us, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So so this is when this is happening. It's the time of harvest and the Jordan is overflowing. Let me read to you from one commentator what this meant for Israel. He says, we must not underestimate the challenge that the river presents to them. This is not a babbling brook in which to paddle. It is a fast-flowing, swirling ford, probably between 10 and 12 feet deep at this season and at this point. Fording or swimming are out of the question, and rafts are an impossibility. 
Remember, too, that this is a whole nation, wives and children, animals and baggage, on the move with no obvious way to cross. So imagine that, 40,000 men of war with all their wives and their children and their baggage at this river that is overflowing, that is streaming fast with no way across. A whole nation of people on one side, the promised land on the other side, and this insurmountable obstacle of a raging river between them. That's the situation in Joshua 3, verse 1. So let's look at this story now and see how it unfolds. Joshua 3, we'll pick up in verse 2. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So again, here is Israel. Uh, they're, they're waiting by the Jordan. They're ready to cross, but they don't know how. They're waiting for instructions, and here the instructions come. The officers of the people come to them, and they, they say that what you're going to see is the priests take up the ark. The priests are going to take up the ark of the covenant, and when you see that, follow. Follow behind the ark of the covenant. But, but they say, make sure that you keep your distance. About 2,000 cubits. That's about 1,000 yards. They say, don't come near it. Why? in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So, so, so this is the instruction. The ark is going to follow you, and you need to stay far back enough from it that you can see where it's going. You can see the direction it's heading. And the picture is that God is going to lead the people across the Jordan. That's the picture in verses 2 through 4. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with His people. It resided in the holy place in the tabernacle. And whenever they moved, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented that God was with His people, the presence of God among them. And so as the Ark goes forward in front of the people, and as they keep their distance back and they're looking, at which direction is it going, where is it going, God is saying, your instruction is to follow the presence of God. Follow the Lord. And so, the people get this instruction, and they get ready to go. And then in verse 5, Joshua comes and gives another instruction. In verse 5, he says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua says, Prepare yourself to see a miracle. Now, they don't know what the miracle is yet, but he instructs them, get yourself ready to see God do something amazing in our midst tomorrow. This consecration probably involved uh, ritual cleansing and washing, but also probably spiritual preparation, confessing their sins and and thinking about the Lord. But, But why this instruction? Why do they need to consecrate themselves for the miracle that's about to happen? Listen to what one author says. He says, it's crucial that Israel recognize that what happens is indeed Yahweh's work. And unless they have proper insight, expectancy, and preparation, they could see Yahweh's work and yet not understand its true value and significance. You catch that? If they don't prepare themselves, if they don't consecrate themselves, then essentially, yes, they would see it, but would they understand it? Would they really be able to interpret it rightly and take it into their hearts? Joshua is saying, prepare your hearts 
to see what God is going to do. Get yourself ready so that when it happens, you can understand why it happened, what it means, how you should think about it, how you should respond to it. And so Israel needed to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves, because God was going to do wonders among them. Now there is a principle here, just really as an aside for us today, that shows the principle of spiritual preparation to hear from the Lord. When we come on Sunday mornings together, we are preparing ourselves to hear the Word of God, to be with the people of God, where the Spirit of God fills us and dwells in us as a temple. And when we come unprepared and enter in, not ready for worship, how much, how much do we hear God, but not really hear Him speaking to us? How much do we, do we understand what happened, but not really understand the significance for our lives? We see here this principle that we should prepare ourselves for what God is going to do in our midst. And God has said every time we open this word that he is going to work through it. And so it just teaches us that we should prepare ourselves for Sunday mornings, prepare ourselves for the times that we are going to come together to hear the word of God. We should get our hearts ready. We should get our minds ready. We should even get our, get our bodies ready to come and hear from the Lord so that when we come, we don't just hear words and walk away, but we come and we understand this is what God was saying to us. This is what this signified in my life. This is how I should respond and it will truly build our faith. And so Joshua says, get yourself ready to see a miracle. And then, in verse 6, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. We'll stop there for a moment because before this miracle comes, God reveals what he is doing, why he's going to do it. He reveals the purpose of this miracle. And there's a purpose for Joshua and there's a purpose for Israel. For Joshua, he says, he says I'm going to do what I'm going to do so that Israel will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Now, we saw already, didn't we, that God has told this to Joshua. In chapter 1, he promised Joshua, I'm going to be with you just as I was with Moses. And in chapter 1, the people responded and said, said may, only may the Lord be with you as he was with Moses. And here God says, I'm going to do something to establish that fact for everyone to know. After this happens, everyone will know that I am with you just as I was with Moses, that my promise that I made, my words I spoke are true. And then he has another purpose for all of Israel, not just relating to Joshua, but for all of them. He says, through Joshua, to the people, here is how you will know that I will drive out the inhabitants of the land when you come into Canaan. It's through this miracle I'm about to do. This, this miracle, this wonder that's about to happen is a sign to you that I will drive out the inhabitants of the land. It is confirmation to you that what I've said I will do, I will do. You guys see the grace of God in this to them? He already told them, 
that he was going to be with Joshua as he was with Moses. He already told them he was giving them the land. They've already had confirmation of that through Rahab, but God still is, is bolstering and strengthening their faith through this miracle he's about to do. He's saying to them, essentially he's saying, I know your faith is weak. I know that you might have doubts. And so I'm going to do another wonder among you to help you see that all that I've said is true and to help you to believe on it and act on it. This is the grace of God to the people. He, he, is, he is graciously reinforcing the truths that he has said. And so what is the miracle? What is God going to do? Let's look now at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 11. This is Joshua speaking to the people still. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore... Take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests were bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan was overflowing all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Then the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that's beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The wonder that God worked among the Israelites, the thing that they had to prepare to do, uh, prepare prepare to see, to prepare to behold, the, the reason God was doing all this, the wonder was the parting of the Jordan, the 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 separating of the waters. It was essentially a second Red Sea experience. How do you know, Israel, that God is with Joshua the way he was with Moses? Because just like God parted the Red Sea through Moses, God stopped the Jordan River from flowing through Joshua. Just as they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, so you passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. How do you know that God is going to drive out the inhabitants of the land? It's because you see the power of God demonstrated in you walking through a raging river on dry ground as God caused this river to literally stand up in a wall about 20 miles north. This is what God did. This, this, is, this is how God teaches His people that I am with Joshua, I am with you, I am for you, and I will do all that I said I will do. Israel faced this impossible situation. They had no idea how they were going to get across. And the Lord, leading them through the Ark of the Covenant, goes into the Jordan River. And when the Ark goes into the river, the waters separate, and the Lord leads every last Israelite safely through to the other side. That's the story. That is, that is what happens in Joshua chapter 3. Imagine being an Israelite crossing through the river, passing by the ark, which you know is somehow, some way, miraculously keeping the water from coming down and flooding you away, crossing through to the other side. And if you read in chapter 4, you actually see in chapter 4 that the moment the priests left the river, the waters came back down. 
The moment their feet left the river, the waters came back down and flowed as before. And so the Lord takes an impossible situation, an insurmountable obstacle, and he makes a way for the people to get into the promised land. Well, what should we learn about this this morning? What, 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 what does this story teach us today? That's obviously the question we really want to know, right? What, what do we do with that? So it's a great story. It's an amazing story of what God did for the people of Israel 3,000 years ago. What should we learn this morning? Well, we've seen a psalm with our kids that I'm sure many of you guys know that I just kept reflecting on as I reflected on this passage. And, and, and it goes, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Starting with that thought, I think there are three things that we need to take away from this story this morning. Three truths for us to learn today. And first, just that simple thought. There's nothing our God cannot do. There's nothing our God cannot do. This passage teaches us something about God that is important to know, and that is God is omnipotent. God is, in other words, all-powerful. He is all-powerful. To be omnipotent, to be all-powerful, means there's nothing He cannot do. It means that He can do whatever He wants, that no one is stronger than Him, nothing can keep Him from doing what He wants to do. He is completely all-powerful. And Joshua emphasizes this to the people when he says that the living God is among them. The Lord of all the earth is with them. Our God is the Lord of all the earth. He's the one who made the heavens. He's the one who made the earth. He made everything in it, and therefore he is all-powerful over it. He he is powerful over, as, as Andrew prayed, every single proton and neutron and electron, and he's powerful over every civilization, and he's power over every meteor in outer space. He is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. There's nothing that he cannot do. This is the God that's given to us in Joshua chapter 3. This is what God is speaking to us. There's nothing I cannot do. Well, if we think about applying that, of course then, we would think whenever we face a situation where we realize that we can't do what we need to do, whenever we face an obstacle that we don't know how to get around, if we worship a God for whom there's nothing he cannot do, then what should we do when we face those situations? We should pray to him. We should go to him and say, God, I believe that you are the God who can do anything. You are the God who is all-powerful, and I'm facing this situation in my life that, that I can't do what I need to do, and so I'm looking to you to do it. We should, we should come to him with all our daily experiences, the impossible situations in our lives, and we should pray to the God who is all-powerful. I, I doubt that anyone in here this morning would argue with the statement that God is omnipotent. You know the Bible teaches this. You believe it's true. But when you face situations in your life where you come up against an unstoppable a, 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 a block in, in the road, an insurmountable obstacle, what does the power of God mean to you in that moment? Do, do you tell yourself, listen, I worship a God who is all-powerful. I, I, I serve a God who can do anything. There's nothing he cannot do. And so my first instinct should be I'm going to go to him and I'm going to pray to him in this moment. One goal of this sermon, one, one thing that I just am praying for is that we would just be a church who, who because we worship a God who is all-powerful, just, just by instinct 
go to him all the time when we face difficulties in our lives, when we face obstacles in our lives, when we face situations we don't know what to do or we don't know how it's going to happen, that we would just immediately go to God and say, God, you are all powerful. There's nothing you cannot do, so please help me in this moment. That being said, it would be wrong to read this chapter and to conclude that whatever obstacle you might be facing, that God will definitively part your Jordan River. Do you want to say, just like God parted the Jordan for them, I know that as I face this situation, I know that God is going to, is going to stop the waters coming down and He's going to lead me through to the other side and that this situation will, will go away and everything will be good again. It'd be wrong to think that. that, that it's, not, it's not the way that we're supposed to read this story. It's not a promise that God will part the Jordan of every obstacle that we face. Now, it's also not a passage that teaches that if God doesn't do that in your life, that he's not all-powerful. When, when God doesn't come through, when we're facing situations and difficulties, when he doesn't do what we want him to do, that does not mean that he's not all-powerful. This is still the same God. He is the Lord of all the earth. It also does not mean that you must lack faith if he doesn't do what you want him to do. This is dangerous teaching that is in the church today that if God is not doing what you want him to do in your life, because he's all-powerful and he's all-loving, he definitely wants to. So the problem is you, the problem is your faith or your lack of faith. If you would just have more faith, God would do this. That's not what this passage is teaching us. This really had nothing to do with Israel's faith. This was actually to strengthen their faith. So what do we make of this? This text definitely teaches us that God is all-powerful, but it also doesn't really promise us that God will do this in all the obstacles that we face. Well, we need to remember that God is not only all-powerful, but he is also all-loving. You know, we, we sing, he is so big and so strong and so mighty, but then we, we usually sing, God is so good. Let's think about those two songs together. God is so big, he's so strong, he's so mighty, there's nothing he can't do, but he is so good, and he loves us, and he hears prayer. And, and this is the God we worship, a God who can do anything and who is completely good all the time. So what do we do with this when we face situations and obstacles in our lives? Many of you know the story in Daniel chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had ordered all the people to bow down to the idol he had set up. And he said, if you do not bow down, then I will throw you into a fiery furnace. And these three faithful Israelites do not bow down. And so they are coming before the king, he's going to cast them into the furnace. In Daniel 3, verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar says, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who, who is going to save you? And they answer and say to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is what we do when we face impossible situations, difficult obstacles, situations in our lives that we, we don't have any recourse for action. We know that God must come through. We, we say God is able. God can do it. And if he doesn't, he is still worthy of our worship. 
If he doesn't, he is still good. We are not going to bow down to another God because we know he's not only mighty, he is good. So this is what we do when we face obstacles, when we face roadblocks. Because there is nothing our God cannot do, we should pray to him for help. At the same time, we should trust his goodness however he responds. Pray to him for help. let's, Let's not... Not pray to him, right? Let's make sure when we face a situation that is hard, that our first instinct is to pray to the God who is all-powerful. He is our Father. He loves us. He cares for us. He says, cast your anxieties on me. So pray to him and pray with confidence that he can do it. But then trust his goodness in response. Trust that no matter what he does, that it is a good response, that it is, he is for you, he is with you, and that he is working all things for your good. And, and listen, that's, that's easy to say. It's hard to do in the moment. And when it's hard to trust him, this is when we need to remember what God has done. We need to remember that he gave his son for us. We need to remember that God sent his only son. He gave him up for us all. And as Romans 8 says, if God gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So when it's hard to trust God and when when we almost are afraid to pray to God because we're afraid that he's not going to give us what we want, we need to remember God has given us his very son. He's not going to withhold any good thing from us. It might not be what we think we need. It might not be what we're wanting most in our own hearts right now, but God will not withhold any good thing from us and he is able to deliver every good thing to us. We know that because of the cross of Jesus Christ That demonstrates God's commitment to our good. And so we can trust him. We can trust the God who can do anything and who has promised that he will do good to us. And so Joshua 3 teaches us so much about the omnipotence of God, the power of God, how we can trust the power of God, how we should pray to him. But at the same time, I think that that has a more focused lesson for us than just that God is omnipotent. Remember that we're in the book of Joshua. This is the book about the people of God on the mission of God, receiving the promises of God. And so I think this passage does assure us of God's power. It assures us that he's omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, but it does it for two specific reasons. It does it not primarily so that you can know that as you face day-to-day obstacles in your life, though that is important to remember, but primarily so that we as the church can remember this morning his power as we are on the mission of God and as we are waiting to receive the promises of God. We need to remember as we go on mission, as we wait for the fulfillment of his promises, that God can do anything, that there's nothing our God cannot do. And so, point number two, second, second thing we need to learn today, is that there's nothing our God cannot do to advance his mission through his people. There's nothing our God cannot do to advance his mission through his people. Why did God part the Jordan for Israel? Well, one thing we know is that God's purpose for Israel, God's mission to Israel in the book of Joshua, was to go into the land and to conquer its inhabitants as instruments of his righteous judgment. That was their mission. But for them to get into the land, they needed to cross the river. If they didn't cross the river, there would be no fulfilling of the mission. And so God does this, one, to get them into the land so that they can fulfill the mission, and two, to give them confidence that once they're in the land, he will fulfill the mission. 
So, so it is part of getting to where they need to be, and then it's confidence that once they're there, he will do what he said he will do. And church, we, we have been given a mission as well. We've talked about this, that, that their mission was to proclaim and execute the righteous judgment of God. Our mission is to go into all the world and proclaim that that judgment has fallen on another, that that judgment has fallen on Jesus Christ, and that you can be saved from the final day of judgment if you put your faith in Him. That's our mission. That is what God is calling us to do. And this text reminds us that there is nothing God cannot do as we go on that mission. And we need to hear this this morning, church, because when you are seeking to advance the gospel and spread the gospel and and take it to the ends of the earth and to your neighbor across the street, there are so many moments where it feels impossible. So many moments where we doubt whether God can do it. We need to hear this morning that God can do it. There's nothing he cannot do because he's the Lord of all the earth. Maybe you are seeking to reach out to someone who just seems to be so hard-hearted to the gospel. It, it just seems like they have completely shut themselves off to any conversation about Jesus, completely shut themselves off to any notion that they might ever believe. God can change the leper's spots, and he can melt the heart of stone. There is nothing that God cannot do. Maybe you were trying to figure out how to reach out to your community, but there just seems to be no open doors, and you have no idea where to go. God teaches us pray for open doors, because there is nothing that God cannot do. He can open doors, but it doesn't seem like there's any doors to even open. God can do it. Maybe you feel the tug on your heart, even if, even if you are, are older and further along in life, a tug on your heart that, that maybe God is calling you to missions. Maybe God is calling you to go across the planet somewhere else and, and take the gospel somewhere, but you don't know how you're going to do it. You don't, you don't know how you're going to, to have the finances, how you're going to get the training, what you're going to do, what about your kids, and all these questions come up. You need to know that God can do it. There's nothing he cannot do. He can provide the way for you to get there if he's calling you to do that. Think about the persecuted church all over the world. The, 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 the world and Satan just attacking the church, persecuting God's people, and, and, and seeking to squelch the gospel. We need to remember that even there, there's nothing God cannot do, and that God uses that persecution to advance the gospel. Think about all the people in closed countries with no access to the gospel and seemingly no way for us to get in. We, we, it's, it's dangerous to even give Bibles. We need to remember that God can do it. God can bring the gospel to them. God can open that country. God can use his people to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, no matter what the obstacles are, because there's nothing that God cannot do. And while we don't know if God is going to to get us through a daily obstacle that we might face in our own personal lives, we can know for sure that Jesus will build his church, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, that, that everyone, that Jesus has, every one of his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. We, we can know these things. And so this is actually a promise to us that God will do it. He will do it. And there's nothing he cannot do. And so church, we are the people of God on the mission of God. And there's nothing God cannot do to advance that mission. And so again, what should we do? We should pray to him to do these things. Pray for your neighbor or your family member who seems so hard-hearted. Pray for that people group that is in a closed country with no access to the gospel. Pray for open doors in your community. 
pray to God to do the impossible things that we cannot do because there's nothing that God cannot do and he will do it. So we know there's nothing that God cannot do specifically in regard to advancing his mission through his people but also there's nothing that our God cannot do to fulfill his promise to his people. There's nothing our God cannot do to fulfill his promise to his people. Remember, there's, there's really two things going on here in Joshua in terms of going into the land. There's the mission, but then there's the final rest. There, there, there's the conquering, but then there's the inheriting of the promises of God. And this moment at the Jordan and God parting the water for them to go into the land, this, this is God doing what needed to be done so that they could inherit the land, so they, could, they could receive the promises of God. And God will do this for us too. God has made us precious promises. He has promised us eternal life and a new heaven and a new earth. And there's nothing that God cannot do to fulfill that promise to us. Think about the Jordan River. What did the Jordan represent in this moment? Again, it represented this this boundary, this obstacle between the people of God on the one side and the promises of God on the other. For the people of God to get to the promises of God, to receive the promises of God, they needed to get over the Jordan River. They needed to cross that river. Well, for centuries, Christians have seen in this story a picture of the great obstacle that stands between us and the promises of God. Think about this hymn goes like this, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. It's written by a Christian several centuries ago who saw this story and recognized that, that the new heavens and new earth is across the Jordan for us, essentially. That, that I'm here at the Jordan, I'm looking across, and what is the Jordan? The Jordan is crossing over death itself. The, the, the obstacle, the thing that stands between us as the people of God and the promises of God in the new heaven and new earth is death itself. And, and that death is, is given to us because of our sin. This is the obstacle between the people of God and the promises of God. This is the seemingly impossible boundary that we need to cross over. How can we get to the promises of God if we have sinned and if we face death? Well, it happens because God has done a mightier act in Jesus Christ than just parting a river. Think about the Ark of the Covenant in this story. The Ark went before the people into the Jordan. The presence of God going before the people into the Jordan. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, dwelt with us, and he went before us into death itself. Jesus entered into death so that we could pass safely through to the other side. He took the judgment of God in death for us, and then he rose again, resurrected from the dead, and promises that all who come through him, all who follow after him, just as they followed after the ark, will come safely through to the other side. The author of that hymn, the chorus says, I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. Confident as can be that he is going to get to the other side. Why? Because Jesus has gone before us. He has entered into death itself and come out the other side. This is what Jesus says in Revelation 1 to a persecuted church. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen to Jesus saying that to us this morning, church. I died, and now I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Death no longer has any reign because I entered death for you. I tasted death for you. I've conquered death for you. The confidence to know that we are bound for the promised land, that God will will fulfill his promises to us, that we will one day be in a new heaven and a new earth in the glory of God is that Jesus has taken our sin and he has died for us and he has taken death itself. He has gone before us into the river of death and made a way for us to pass safely through to the other side. Listen, whatever the obstacle is that you face today in your life right now, do you realize that God has done in Christ the most incredible thing for you? Whatever that obstacle today is, know that the greatest obstacle you will ever face, the greatest difficulty you will ever encounter, the most impossible situation that you will ever encounter, Jesus has already done it. He has already conquered death. He has already received victory. And so whatever other obstacles we face in life, we can rejoice that nothing fully, finally, will take away the promises of God from us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall nakedness or famine or danger or sword? We face these things all day long, but nothing will separate us from the love of Christ because he has taken our sin, he has died in our place, he has gone before us so that we can go safely through to the other side. So yes, let's pray to God when we face difficulties because he's all-powerful. There's nothing he cannot do. Let's pray to him. Let's pray to him as we go on mission as the people of God. Let's pray that he will do the things that we cannot do, that we know he needs to do. But then let's rejoice in the power of God demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God in Christ has gone safely, has made a way for us to go safely through by Jesus facing death for us. Let's rejoice this morning, just with all our hearts, that Jesus has done this. He has done the impossible for us. When you enter into a a posture of prayer as we prepare to sing, So I want to encourage you right now, whatever the difficulty is in this moment in your life, pray right now. Ask God to help you. Say, God, you are all-powerful. You can do anything. There's nothing you cannot do, so please help me in this situation. Please do what I cannot do. Maybe there's someone in your life that doesn't know the Lord that's on your mind. Pray right now that God would do the impossible in that person's life, in that person's heart. Say, God, there's nothing you cannot do. Change this person's heart. Melt the heart of stone. But then finally, rejoice that we are the recipients of the most powerful act of God, that Jesus has taken our death, and he rose again. He died, and now he is alive forevermore. And in him, we are alive and we will one day live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Let's rejoice in that this morning.